You're listening to the Doc Lounge Podcast. This is a place for candid conversations with healthcare industry's top physicians, executives, and thought leaders. This podcast is made possible by Pacific Companies, your trusted advisor in physician recruitment. I am your host, Summer Gilbert, and I am the Director of Marketing and Branding here at Pacific Companies. And today, my co-host is Director of Recruitment, Mr. Casey Galpin. Thank you, Casey, for joining me today. No problem, Summer. I'm happy to be here. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Dr. Graham Wagner, board-certified physiatrist, working out of one of my favorite places, beautiful Utah. Dr. Wagner holds a specialty board certification in physical medicine and rehabilitation and a subspecialty board certification in pain medicine. Currently, Dr. Wagner is working in the Department of Neurosurgery. He works really closely with neurosurgeons treating and focusing on spinal and musculoskeletal conditions. So we are really excited to have Dr. Wagner on the podcast and get to know more about his specialty in PM&R and more about his journey. So thank you so much, Dr. Wagner, for being here. I know your time is precious, so let's get started. And just a quick reminder, this podcast is intended to be an open forum. Any personal beliefs, views, or opinions represented in this episode are that of our guest and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Pacific Companies. So please have an open mind and remember that this podcast is not a news source, but rather a safe and neutral platform for candid conversations. Well, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Wagner. Uh, Where are you out of again? Uh, I'm in Salt Lake City, Utah. Nice. I love Utah. How's the weather? Is it snowing today? Oh, yes. Very much so. We're expecting a couple feet over these next couple days, so I'm pretty excited. The resort's just opened up. Oh, man. I'm jealous. Wish I was out there. Um, To start, I'm going to throw this over to Casey for the first question. Yeah, Dr. Wagner, what we like to do in the beginning of the podcast is just if you want to just give us a quick 30-second, a minute kind of background about you, where you grew up, Um, where you did your um, undergrad, medical school, kind of how you got your start. Okay. Um, I was uh, born in New York, grew up there, upstate New York, uh, and Massachusetts, coastal Massachusetts. Um, Ended up going to undergraduate uh, at the University of Rhode Island. And then uh, a couple years after that, after I'd worked a few years um, in a job I, I didn't end up loving, uh, in the medical sales field, uh, I moved out to, to Utah to check out the skiing just for a, a season. And like most people that end up out here, I couldn't just stay for a season. And so I ended up uh, coming back the, for the next ski season. And then that was it. They, they had me. And, uh, you know, just ended up um, loving the lifestyle. And, um, ended up going to uh, medical school 10 years after I graduated uh, from, from undergraduate. Yeah, that's a pretty, um, pretty rare to see somebody take a decade off, do a different career, then jump back into medicine. How did that affect you getting into medical school? And likewise, how did that affect you once you were in there? Did you find it easier because you had real life experience? You know, it, there, was, there were pluses and minuses to it for sure. Um, I think that actually getting into medical school was probably a little easier 
um, you know, I did have some some contacts, and I think medical schools realize that now that doing other things um, and not just working from the time you're in high school towards that goal of of going to medical school um, is is somewhat of an advantage potentially. Uh, as far as um, going into uh, medical school and it being easier or more difficult, I would just say that there were, were some things that were certainly easier. I had a work ethic like I didn't have even in, in college. Um, you know, I'd been working for myself for a number of years. Uh, and so going back and, and doing the work, yeah, I treated it like it was a job and it was easy for, for me. Um, whereas other people struggled to be able to buckle down. Um, you know, not everyone for sure. Um, but some, uh, the difficult part was going from being in control of my own life and being able to manage my time as I saw fit. Uh, I actually, um, had my own business. And so, um, going to be on everyone else's schedule all the time uh, was definitely challenging. And I, I found that, um, you know, being stuck in a room for <laughs> 70 hours a week in front of a computer or in front of a, a PowerPoint lecture was, was definitely a little bit difficult. What inspired you to go into medicine? So I had... Uh, my stepfather, who I really respected, um, was a physician. He was a, a rheumatologist, loved his job, loved his patients. Um, and really it was a, a career for him. It was, you know, life defining. Um, and I was always very impressed with that. I didn't go into medicine initially, um, right out of college because there were so many other things that I was interested in. And I just didn't feel like I could make that commitment to doing one thing for the rest of my life. Um, and I know there are exceptions to that, but, um, you know, for a, a large portion of your life and at the very least the next decade, uh, you are committed to medicine. And, um, I wanted to know with a hundred percent certainty, not only that that was what I wanted to do, but also that I didn't want to do something else more. So I, I tried a few things that were very interesting to me. Um, I went to the State Department to work um, and uh, because I was a political science major coming out of college, I uh, thought I might want to work in the Foreign Service and realized that that, that probably wasn't for me. Um, I worked in medical sales and I also worked in, in real estate and construction. And so all of those things seemed like they were very viable career paths for me. But in the end, it, it you know, medicine still was more interesting. And so I'm very happy that I, I took this path, yeah, even though it was a little circuitous. Hi, Doc. So, you, so taking back, so you're finishing up your uh, medical school, what, third or fourth year, and you, can, you have a, di a lot of different directions you can go. You can go to internal medicine. You go family medicine. You have a lot of options, and you choose uh, physiatry. How do you come about making that decision? What was it about physiatry that said this is what I want to do? Right, that's a great question. Um, 
first of all, the physiatry is not something that um, a lot of medical students even have exposure to. So I felt like I was lucky to even know about the field. Um, it's certainly not a core rotation um, at, at every school. It wasn't at, my, at mine. Um, and so uh, I had heard about it um, from uh, just, I, I guess, you know, personal experience. Um, like most young males, at the very least, uh, my primary care was orthopedics and sports medicine. And that was the only doctors I ever saw, unless it was an emergency department physician. And so um, I had seen kind of what they do um, to, a, to a certain extent. And so I knew at least that I wanted to explore it. And then uh, once I had done a rotation, um, it, it was early in fourth year, uh, and I had done, you know, all my big rotations prior to that. And so I had kind of seen what the, the vibe was of every specialty, you know, if you can generalize like that. And I, I just thought that when I was around the physiatrists, like, these are my people, you know, they're relaxed, they're caring, they're, you know, a very, a, a very outdoorsy and sporty group, um, and I, I just felt like I was at home. Like, finally, this is what I'd been waiting for, that aha moment. Um, and it just that was completely confirmed when I went to internship. There were a couple of preliminary um, physiatrists like myself. And, like, they were the people I got along great with. Um, and so it, it's it sort of held true um, throughout that once I found, like, these are my people um, – I, w I was very happy. So, Doug, do you, do you take into consideration, knowing some of the physiatrists there down the road, what the work-life balance is going to be? Because if you're an, or an orthopod, the work-life balance is usually not great. Whereas physiatry, most people consider that to be able to give you the opportunity to have one of the best work-life balances of any specialty in medicine. Do you think about that while you're going through this decision? You know, that, that was a big part of it. Um, I had looked at it in two ways, like, okay, what can I, what can I tolerate as far as work hours? You know, if I was going to go into neurosurgery, that's, you know, it, minimum 80 hours a week for seven years at a minimum. Um, you know, and I, I didn't think that that was um, going to be okay for my family and myself, but um you know, internship, excuse me, I should say, uh, you know, internship and residency, um, you know, you work a lot of hours and I, I would think all specialties, you know, I did a lot of overnights, I did a lot of call. Um, and that was, you know, just sort of, it's to be tolerated uh, throughout training. After residency, though, um, I was definitely looking forward to um, a more office-based clinical experience um, where I was, you know, had predictable hours and was able to kind of create my own schedule. Um, so sort of my, my ideas um, for how I wanted my life to be after have, have really held true to a large extent. Um, you know, I should say after training have held true uh, during my my first year of uh, in the attending world. You did a chief residency year, correct? I did. Yes. I did it in during my third year instead of fourth year. Um, and it was, it was quite enjoyable. So what made you decide to do the, the chief residency year? And 
is a lot of our podcast goes out to people in medical school or in early part of residency. How do you decide I'm going to do the, the chief medical year and what all consisted of that, that year? Well, for, for us, and I think this is different for different specialties, like internal medicine does a, a fourth year as their chief year. Um, for us, it was just, it was integrated. You just, that was an additional responsibility. We didn't get paid. It was just, um, you know, something that we did. And I sort of chose that um, to do that. We, we had to be elected. Um, of course, but uh, I, I wanted to do it because there were some things that I thought I could affect, some change um, that I thought would be helpful. And I wanted a little bit of leadership and administrative experience um, in medicine, you know, just seeing if I, if I liked that role, uh, if that was something that I wanted to go into later. Um, it was definitely doing it as a third year, I felt was... Um, you know, interesting because the the fourth years, um, you know, I was younger than them and they had more experience than me. Um, so there were there were times that mm -hmm. heads were butting a little bit, but overall it was just a, a great experience. And uh, I would definitely recommend it to anyone that thinks they might be interested. Um, you know, when, up front it was very uh, time consuming, creating schedules, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. um, but once the, the year got rolling, uh, it was quite rewarding, and I'm, I'm definitely glad I did it. You know what's interesting is we just recently had an anesthesiologist on the podcast and was told that anesthesiologists are the best for pain management. So what are your thoughts about that? <laughs> You know, I, th I think it depends on the individual. <laughs> um, I, I definitely think it depends on the individual because we all bring different strengths and weaknesses to the specialty. Um, pain management can be, um, you know, entered through a number of different fields. Um, I think, you know, neurosurgeons have a part in that, uh, anesthesiologists. Um, I've seen uh, radiologists um apply and I know at least one radiologist has done pain management even though they have the alternate pathway of interventional radiology um, neuro neurologists have um, that potential pathway and so I think I think everyone um, brings something to the table certainly coming out of uh, out of residency physiatrists and neurologists have a huge leg up on diagnosing pain generators um, that's not really something and seeing patients in clinic is not something that anesthesiologists focus on um, during their residency that said you know the interventional skills um, by and large I think anesthesiologists will have a, a leg up there so entering the the fellowship year um, you know we have pretty divergent skill sets but over the year everything's you know in my experience anything anyway uh, they uh, everyone's skill sets tended to converge and we all um, worked hard at what our our initial deficits were um, so I think it much more so relates to the individual than to the, the specialty that they initially trained in. Um, because really, the fact of the matter is you learn whatever it is you need to learn, um, either through, you know, seeking that training out on your own um, or during the fellowship year. Um, 
you know, the pharmacology that they're, the anesthesiologists are strong in, you know, we're going to pick that up. The, the clinical skills, the physical exam that the physiatrists are strong in, uh, the anesthesiologists are going to pick up on that. So um, I think the, for me personally, I, as far as who I would like to train with, um, I'd like to see somebody from every field. In a, in a fellowship class. Physiatry, anesthesiology, neurology, radiology. I mean, those are all, um, you know, some all, all those specialties will bring something very different, but very necessary to, uh, to the training environment. Yeah, sounds like you guys all bring something to the table equally. If you had to go back in time and choose a different specialty, what would it be? You know, I, <laughs> I've thought about that different times and pe people have asked me um, about that. I initially went into to medical school thinking that, well, I'm going to be an orthopedic surgeon and because I had the most contact with orthopedic surgeons. It looked fun. Um, you know, it seemed a little like construction to me, which I was, um, you know, involved in since I was a, a teenager. Um, and then uh, as things progressed, I realized that, that that's probably not, um, you know, being in the operating room for most of um, my, my clinical time just wasn't where I wanted to be. I wanted to be talking with patients. And so um, I think that if I had to do it again, and I could do this from, from physiatry, but if I were going to do a, a fellowship, I would probably do um, palliative care. I think that they just provide an invaluable service from people for for people and their families um, in this really important time of their lives, um, and can really just change the whole experience of of end of life care for people. And it still, you know, I'd be able to work with with my interest pain. Um, in, in that capacity, but I have an awful lot of respect for those guys and some of the, the palliative care physicians that I've, I've worked with have been the, the best people that I've trained with. It's crazy. I'm totally noticing a trend now when I ask this question, depending on the specialty the physician is, um, I'm finding similarities in answers. Like for example, um, a couple ophthalmologists said ENT we had emergency medicine physicians say general surgery. So I find that fascinating. But uh, circling back to physiatry, what do you like least and most about your specialty? So um, I think what I like most about my specialty, so now my, my subspecialty is um, spine care. And so uh, I love my working environment. I work with um, very closely with neurosurgeons. Um, over in, in their department and I uh, feel that that's very collaborative, um, a, a very good synergy. Um, you know, we pass patients back and forth as appropriate and um, I guess just that environment that I'm in um, makes me, uh, you know, love going to work every day. Um, the, another thing that I really like is uh, like being able to diagnose a specific pain generator and address that for someone, um, you know, and then being the physiatrist that I am, you know, having them follow up and telling me all the things that that meant in terms of their, their functional improvement, you know, getting back to doing all the stuff that they, they really wanted to do. Um, somebody came in the other day and was like, I was able to walk around Seattle and I haven't been able to walk around for more than a couple minutes in years. And, 
you know, they were on vacation with their family and they were participants as opposed to just hearing about it. And it just, it, you know, it's, it's things like that that make me so happy. Um, so that's the, that's the stuff that I, I really like. Um, you know, so the, a harder part of the job is when someone comes in and maybe they, you know, have a, a I'm putting up air quotes here, but um, a pain all over type situation. Um, you know, and maybe it's, uh, maybe it's organic, maybe it's not, uh, but really helping them, them navigate that. And um, oftentimes those are hard conversations if I'm not able to help them because, um, you know, this isn't all the time, but, but sometimes when, when someone gets to me, um, they've seen a lot of people, a lot of different people in the past. Um, and I, I really hate to pass people along again because they feel like, okay, they're, they're deep down the rabbit hole and it, it, at some point, you know, by the time they see me oftentimes um, and that they're, you know, this is the, the subspecialist. This is who should be helping me out. So that, that part of it's difficult. So are you doing a lot of um, or treating a lot of TBI or traumatic brain injury since you're working with the neurosurgeons? So I, I don't. No, um, I, I work, uh, in interventional spine just about exclusively. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the, my, um, my department, the physical men rehab department, uh, does do follow-up care. Uh, we have a, an inpatient, uh, rehab unit here and they will continue to follow up with the physiatrist, but I don't do that. Um, when I trained, I certainly worked with a lot of traumatic brain injury patients though, for sure. And it was, uh, it was very rewarding seeing those, those patients get better and improve and seeing the, you know, the, the family, um, you know, kind of come to terms with what was going on and kind of realizing what, what, what was happening and how it's not the patient's fault, how they're acting oftentimes. It was just a, a really enjoyable um, part of my training for sure. So I've got an interesting question, especially dealing with the, you know, the spine in the back. I'm sure you have a lot of patients that have chronic pain. Um, and with the opioid crisis, I know doctors are trying to steer away from prescribing what are your thoughts on that i know doctors need to be really cognizant of this issue yes for sure and uh, in general um for acute pain i'll prescribe opioids um and other uh medications that are appropriate for short-term pain management but uh by and large i don't do any opioid prescribing um, I think that now the era that we're in, there has been, and especially over the last year to two years, there has been so much discussion in the media and uh, health departments are just advertising heavily. I don't know about where you guys are, but um, when I go down the, the main thoroughfare um, through Salt Lake City, down the, the population center in Utah, um, it's called the Wasatch Front, but I might see you know, five to 10 billboards advertising either recovery from opiates or some, some health department um, signs saying that opiates are addictive, opioids are equivalent to heroin, things like that. So I think people are very aware um, of that now and they, you know, most people don't want to go down that road. And I will hear more people ask for help um, transitioning to something other than opiates. Um, 
rather than people ask. It's very rare for me to hear someone ask for, for opiates specifically. Um, but we, there are plenty of things that are available instead of opiates for chronic, uh, chronic pain. Um, you know, there's various neuromodulation devices like spinal cord stimulators, which are an implant um, that can be very effective for certain types of pain. Um, you know, psychologic interventions uh, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, um, you know, treating underlying psychiatric conditions like PTSD, anxiety, depression. Um, there are medications that uh, can be effective in treating um, chronic pain. Um, you know, I don't know that uh, there's any silver bullet or magic bullet out there um, for uh, for um, medication-wise, but um, we do have a, a lot of um, different options for for treating people. Um, you know, pain is complex. It is. It's not a, a one-size-fits-all um, treatment algorithm um, as much as we would like it to be. And so what works for one person doesn't necessarily work for another. Um, so oftentimes, you know, retrialing physical therapy um, and uh, getting people um, to be more aware of their bodies, to be more aware of their nutrition, their movement patterns um, is very helpful. And people might have pain for, you know, 30, 50 years, I'll hear people say. And um, I never look at it like it's a lost cause by any means. Yeah. Well, I'm curious to get your take on this big trend of CBD and cannabis pharmacies popping up everywhere. Yeah, so that's that's interesting. We don't have a lot of good evidence that there is, um, you know, a, a correct dose or a correct uh, mixture of, of CBD and THC um, to treat pain. Uh, some people try it on their own. In general, I'll tell people, and it's not uh, it's not legal here, and so it, it definitely varies state by state. Um, and, and different states have, have very different rules. Um, you know, even if, like, for instance, um, you know, in Vermont and New Hampshire, uh, the rules were completely different, even if the intent of the legislature was very similar, um, you know, how those, those rules were created and executed um, were drastically different. So for, for us, um, you know, I, I'm able to tell people uh, they have access to CBD oil. Um, you know, I, it's worth a try. Uh, I, I can't tell them um, exactly how much to take or um, what way in which to take it uh, just because we don't have good high-quality studies telling us these sort of things like we have for other medications or interventions. Um, and then as far as THC goes, I generally tell people, um, you know, there, there are carcinogens in, uh, in, the, mar in the, the cannabis plant, um, probably don't smoke it. Um, and then if you are going to obtain um, cannabis that has some component of THC in it, then uh, you probably want to start off with something that has a higher ratio of CBD to, to THC um, just to see how you react to that. Yeah. I've wanted to get a physician's take on this and, and see if there's actual research being done. I think there, there may be um, a, a role for the uh, cannabinoid 
receptors um, in, in affecting those in one way or another. Um, in chronic pain, there are um, you know dozens of uh, chemicals and uh, and receptors that are um, involved in the pain pathway. And so, if we can figure out a, a place um, for for that compound, um, those compounds um, or that substance, or if we're able to uh, create a synthetic compound that affects the uh, cannabinoid receptors. Um, you know, we very well may be, may be able to add that uh, to our armamentarium for treating pain. Yeah, I mean, if it works and there's less chance of addiction and it's actually taking pain away from people, I mean, that's what's important. But moving on to my favorite question, what has been your most unusual or interesting case that you've had so far in your career? I know it's probably hard just to pick one. I've had quite a quite a few that are extremely memorable, but I I think that just because of the the person and his unique situation, and it was something that I didn't see. There was a this was during residency. Um, a gentleman I was working on the the inpatient rehab floor. Um, a gentleman he was he was in his eighties, and he was a good hardworking farmer, clean living. Um, but he had just tremendous atherosclerotic disease. Um, you know, his when on an X-ray you would see his digital arteries lit up from all the calcification. So it was it was everywhere. Uh, and he um, came to us. He it had initially presented with rest pain, which is um, pain from from poor blood flow that's not relieved with rest. It's a, a claudication issue. Um, and he eventually the pain was bad enough that he had a, a below knee amputation that had progressed to an above knee amputation. And he was he was he was a very poor surgical candidate for that reason he had had um i think it was primary sclerosing cholangitis uh and had um you know a number of other issues he had chronic kidney disease so he was never going to to do well at healing after this procedure um and he ended up uh just kind of you know going downhill there he had a couple of infections oh and another part of his background was that he was a farmer and he went out and this was you know 15 years prior to when he had presented he went out to mow one more field and he forgot his um his blanket that he used to put on top he had a metal seat on his tractor that had you know bolt heads um sticking up and he'd cover them with the with the blanket but he got a a sacral ulcer that hadn't healed in 15 years. And so it was still an issue for him. Um, and so, we, I mean, the foregone conclusion was that he was never going to heal well from that amputation. And this was for pain. And one of the, the primary um, indications for, uh, for spinal cord stimulator therapy in Europe is um, rest pain uh, or angina pain. So, um, wow this was someone that probably would have been identified where he in in Europe is a better candidate for that than a than a surgery um, and so uh, I was you know, heavily into um, research in uh, 
are researching um, spinal cord stimulator therapy at the time. And so this was something that jumped out at, at, at me. Um, but he ended up passing away from complications of this, just, you know, worsening overall health. Uh, and it, it stuck with me for, for a long time. Wow, what an experience to be a part of a case like that. Thank you for sharing. We're um, getting up close to our, um, our time stop here. So I wanted to take a half step back. And if you can kind of go back to when you were a resident and now that you've finished, you've been in practice for a while, what do you wish you knew in residency that you know now that would have made life a little easier? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, you know, the, <laughs> the fact that there's a, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, you know, I always sort of thought that it was there, but I didn't know if I could believe it. Um, so just, just knowing that is very freeing. Um, but I probably could have relaxed a little. Um, you know, I felt like it was my job to be perfect all the time and to do everything right and to always be there and always have the answers. And, um, you know, I, I think that people would have understood if I had not been, um, you know, perfect all the time, or I was trying to be, I can't say that I was, uh, by any means, but, uh, that would definitely have, you know, made it perhaps a little more enjoyable for me. And I think I've given myself the, the right to not feel like I need to be that way now that I'm, I'm, uh, past that, that phase. Um, mm -hmm. and so that's been, been really, um, again, freeing for me. Um, but definitely, uh, you know, to all the residents out there and, and medical students as well. Um, you know, you, you need to, to not be so hard on yourself all the time. I think the people that go into this field um, can tend to do that sometimes. Yeah, I could see that happening. After, obviously, you finish your fellowship. The next year, you start bringing in quite a bit of money. Everybody could, as a physician does. How do you, and do they teach you anything about finances? Do they talk to you about that? Or how did you manage to to manage that aspect after you start getting large checks from a residency or fellowship stipend? Did, how did you manage that aspect? <laughs> um, I, I may not be the person to ask that question. My financial situation was very different um, than probably most people coming out of residency. I'd been in the workforce for 10 years and, um, you know, so I, I had paid for my medical school, um, you know, by the time I was done with medical school, I didn't have any debt. Um, my wife w had been running her own business for 10 years, which she continued to do um, during training. And so, uh, you know, she kept us pretty comfortable. And, uh, and we had had investments that we had planned on just sort of selling throughout the the training period to, to pay for everything and kind of maintain our lifestyle. And so we didn't really change anything in that respect. Um, you know, we, we didn't hold anything back that we wanted, um, you know, during the training period. And so nothing's really changed at all for me. I'm able to put a lot more into, um, my retirement account, especially because, uh, I work for a, a state institution. And so I was very cognizant of, you know, what my retirement, uh, 
planning options were um, when evaluating different jobs. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So last one for me, um, and I'll probably get this wrapped up, is what what advice would you give to somebody in medical school or residency about choosing the specialty that they go into for the next 30 years? I would just say, you know, think, think about it long and hard, you know, deliberate over that decision. You've really got to like what you're doing on a day in and day out basis. Um, I mean, truly, if it, that's, that's a long time to be doing the same thing. Um, or even, even if you're, you know, taking various roles in medicine, it's, it's an, an awful long time. Um, so just make sure that, you know, it, at its worst, are you still enjoying to some degree um, what you're doing? Don't just think about the best days. Think about the, the hardest days. You know, are you going to be able to kind of take those um, as they come for, for years and years? And also, you know, just think about are the people that you're going to be working with, are they... Uh, I guess the type of people that you want to be around day in and day out. Um, you know, do you, do you get something from them? Do you get an energy from them or is it exhausting or, um, you know, to be in that, in that environment? Because over time it's going to wear on you, I think. And doctors, they're not retiring at, at 50. You know, they go hard and have long careers. Um, can you see yourself practicing you know, into your 70s, 80s? Oh, sure, sure. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult for me to say now um, what things are going to look like in the, you know, in, in healthcare in general, what the environment is going to be, um, you know, even five years from now, no matter, 35 years from now. Um, but I like to keep busy. So I, I don't know that, um, that 65 is going to come and I'm going to be looking forward to retiring. I think it'll probably be a little, little later than that. Well, Dr. Wagner, I cannot thank you enough for talking to Casey and I today. After listening to your story, I feel like you kind of did it right. I don't hear about many physicians going to medical school later in life like you did, but you were able to get more professional experience, life experience, and that is priceless. And, uh, and then also not having that financial stress and burden, preparing yourself for medical school just sets you up in a different mindset. You can focus on learning. Yeah, it worked for me. Um, there, there was a significant opportunity cost though, as I was making either no money or in paying for medical school or making very little money during residency, um, all those years would have been very productive for me otherwise. Um, so to do it, if, if I would say um, that there's probably not a right or a wrong way to do it. It just depends on what you think is right for you. Now, I will say that I would not have given up my 20s. Um, for any vocation. Uh, I, I loved what I did. I was able to ski hard on 20-something-year-old knees, mountain bike hard on, on 20-something-year-old legs. So, um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't change anything. But, um, I, yeah, I just don't know that there's a, a single right or a wrong way for, for any individual. Yeah. And I'm curious. So our listeners can get an accurate understanding of your journey. How old were you when you actually started medical school, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, I guess I would have been 32. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, no, it seemed it seemed like a good time. I still I still felt 
um, as young as I did when I was 22 and um, felt like I had a little bit more experience with just everything, definitely a, a, a higher maturity level than I did at 22. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, worked out right for me. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Dr. Wagner. It was such a pleasure having you on the Doc Lounge podcast today. And we enjoyed you so much. We went 15 minutes over our normal time. <laughs> well, thank you, Summer and Casey. I appreciate it. <laughs> What does the rest of your day look like? Oh, I, I have some administrative time, so I'm taking care of some paperwork, and I'm watching it hammer snow here. And so I'm just thinking about how much skiing I'm going to do tomorrow. Sounds so fun. What ski resort do you go to? Yeah, so I, I live in Park City. I think um, tomorrow we'll go to Park City, um, and then probably Friday or Saturday go up to Solitude. Cool. Check that out. There's a certain amount to, you know, a certain, a certain uh, advantage to having these big amalgam passes where they, you know, there's like 30 different ski resorts on the, on the ski pass. <laughs> Sweet. Well, thanks again. And I hope you have a great day. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate the opportunity. I hope this was uh, helpful. It was certainly fun for me. It was great. Really insightful. Well, happy holidays. Happy holidays. Take care. You too. Bye. Thank you to all our listeners. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes air, make sure to hit that subscribe button. And thank you to Pacific Companies. Without you guys, this podcast would not be possible. If you'd like to be a guest or for more information, go to www.pacificcompanies.com.